Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 27, A Mythic Tale When I got home that night, I fell into bed without even kicking off my shoes. I slept for ten hours straight and woke up in the same face-down, bag-of-bones position that I landed in. A hot shower and a couple cups of coffee made me more responsive to external stimuli, and that was when I noticed the buzzing noise my cell phone was making. I flipped it open to find another text message. Washington Mutual, 8th and Market, 302, Red. Red's ATM conquests were the least of my problems now. I chucked the phone onto my pillow and went into the living room, where I found the light on my answering machine was blinking as well. The first message was from Chris. I found out Gretchen is awake and doing well. You'll be pleased to know that we sent flowers and a tasteful card, but don't bother trying to get in to see her. Dr. P.P. has got us on the no-fly list at the hospital. I'll be back at CVT tomorrow trying to see if I can find out more about the logic bomb. I hope you did something clever at Guyberger's. Ta-ta. I wasn't exactly sure what I had accomplished at Guyberger's, but clever couldn't be stretched to encompass it. The next message was a hang-up from a block number at 10.10 p.m., followed by another at 10.32. The final one at 11.05 had the voice of a real person. August, this is Lisa. I've been calling this number in your cell, but you haven't been answering. Mother didn't want me to contact you, but I had to let you know we're safe. Things have gotten complicated. I won't go into details, but, but I miss you. Please take care of yourself and don't do anything foolish. I may not be able to call again for a while, but you're definitely in my thoughts. There was a pause, and then she giggled. You and your cute little ass. There's nothing like a flattering mention of one's ass to really set you up for the day. What I didn't like was the veiled reference to the continuing threat from Wu, and, given the events of last night, the nagging feeling that there were more players in the game than were listed in my program. Certainly the guys on the other cruiser did not fit the employment profile or the work methods I had in mind for Wu's minions. That led me to the decision to track down the cruiser. Chris was right. Wu had probably skipped out of the country by now and my chances of finding him before the election were nil. Finding a 40-odd-foot cabin cruiser with a transom peppered with 30-odd six shell holes might be a little more my speed. I dialed the office of a big-wheel lawyer I'd worked with named Mark Ritchie. I happened to know he owned a yacht. I'd never been on it, but I'd spent a good percentage of my life staring at a wall-sized photograph of it while I cooled my heels in his waiting room. I clocked in another 20 minutes of wait time after his secretary put me on hold. August, 
he boomed in his usual hail fellow voice. Sorry to keep you. What can I do for my favorite Miles Archer? You mean Sam Spade. Archer was the one who got shot. Of course I do. What's up, young man? I need some advice. Where do you keep your yacht? I keep it in Sausalito. Why? Because that's where I keep my house. <laughs> Are you pondering a nautical turn? No, I'm trying to track down the location of a particular boat, a 40-foot cabin cruiser. I'm surprised at you, August. Boats are registered just like cars. Bribe someone at the DMV like you usually do. I didn't get the name of the boat. Hmm. Name wouldn't do you any good. You need the whole number. What is this? A hit and run? I picked up my box of Lucky Charms from the card table and shook it idly. Something like that. The last time I saw it, it was heading east and north from Oyster Point Marina. And you're sure it's not berthed there? Not likely. Well, if you mean to check out all the marinas in the East and North Bay, you've got your work cut out for you. There are about eight in Oakland alone. Can you take an educated guess about the most likely places for that sort of boat to be docked? A 40-foot cruiser, you said. Did it look new? Well-maintained? It looked pretty flossy to me. Richie made a little clicking noise with his tongue. I've never thought about matching boat types to particular marinas before, but it's a sort of fun guessing game. You can leave out most all of the marinas north of the Golden Gate. Sausalito, Tiburon, etc. They're mainly for waspy yacht owners like me. Cruisers are more blue-collar. But it sounds like your boat is one of the classier vessels. The Berkeley Marina is mixed. There's a yacht club, but there are definitely also fishing boats and plenty of cruisers. So I'd try that. I'd definitely check out Alameda Marina, and in Oakland I'd try Jack London, Mariner Square, and North Basin. What about San Francisco? You could give Pier 39 a go and the marina near Fort Mason. There's an east and a west harbor there. The east harbor, which they call Gashouse Cove, is more likely because two yacht clubs have staked out the west. But the east is still pretty prestigious. There are no open berths, and the waitlist time is years. He sighed, and there was a rustling noise as he moved the phone closer to his mouth. Of course, all this is complete speculation on my part. There are easily a dozen other marinas your boat could be in. Your speculations are a lot better than mine. Thanks for your help, Mark. My pleasure. It was a good break from redlining contracts. Anchors away. I hung up then and tried giving Gretchen a call at the hospital. I got as far as the nursing station in critical care, but they told me she wasn't allowed phone calls yet, and besides, she was taking a nap. I wanted to blame Drent for blocking access, but since I hadn't given a name, it was hard to see how. The elevator in my building was out of service again, so I plodded down the four flights of stairs to the first floor, taking a mental inventory of the new aches and pains I'd accumulated as I went. The blisters on my hands and the soreness in my shoulders from rowing topped the list. When I got to the lobby, I pushed through the front door and turned left on post to head to the garage where I kept the galaxy. I didn't get far. 
The passenger door of a black Mercedes parked on the corner popped open, and an obvious ex-boxer stepped out. There was scar tissue over both his eyes, his nose was signaling for a left turn, and his ears were as shrunk and as misshapen as a couple of flattened chestnuts. He strode over to me, rubbing the back of his shaved head as he came. With me, he muttered. You think? I started to turn away, but he grabbed a wad of my coat, yanked me close, and landed a shot to my solar plexus. Yeah, he said as he bent over the punch. He steered me into the backseat of the car, piled in after me, and grunted to the driver, another bald-headed cutie. The car roared out onto post. It took me a while to get my breath back, and a while longer to sit upright. Where are we going? I managed finally. He stared out of the window at the passing cars, already bored with the whole thing. To an opening. Right. What kind? Garage. I had intended to follow up on Richie's suggestions for marinas in Oakland and Berkeley first, but I remembered his description of the San Francisco marina near Fort Mason well enough when we pulled into the parking lot. The driver brought the car to a stop and undid the door locks. Get out, said the guy next to me. What then? You're the detective. Figure it out. But if we have to come back, it won't be for a ride. I stepped out into a patch of rubbery ice plant littered with fast food wrappers and the string and tail from a crash-landed kite. The Mercedes reversed, did a three-point turn, and pulled away. The lot ran along the water between the two harbors. I trudged over to the eastern one, which Richie had called Gashouse Cove. It was smaller and older-looking than Oyster Point Marina, but the layout was similar, Six or seven fingers with berths for several dozen boats in each. There seemed to be one of just about every kind of craft, including tugboats and fishing boats, and there were a number of cruisers. I went over the rickety gangway for the nearest finger and started my search. The only cruiser docked in it was too small and too dilapidated. The next one over had no cruisers at all. Same with the next but the fourth had two likelies docked next to each other. Both were large, gleaming white, and angular, and looked more like something that Han Solo would be flying around the outer reaches of the universe than would be puttering around the bay. I walked on rotted planking to the back of the closer boat and stooped down with my hands on my knees, leaning out as far as I could over the water to catch a look at the transom. Venus de Milo was written there in a sort of ersatz Roman lettering, but there were no bullet holes. As I straightened up, swearing under my breath about the twinges that still radiated from my stomach, a lilting voice sang out, Mr. August Reardon. A silver-haired man with a ruddy complexion and an even ruddier Bloody Mary stood on the aft deck of the second cruiser. He waved the celery stick from his drink at me. You're getting warm, man, but you're not hot yet. I walked around the U formed by the burst to the back of his boat and repeated my inspection. A constellation of holes in a trapezoid shape hung a few inches above the water line, in line with the starboard propeller. A layer of white contact paper covered the name of the boat, but in the bright morning sun I could just make out the letters, HMS Happy Day. 
Did you find what you were looking for? said the man. He stood at the back railing, nearly on top of me. Yes. Come aboard, then. I expect you'll want to talk. I looked up at him with what was probably a dubious expression. Is anyone else there with you? Just me and my vodka bottle. A set of portable steps were parked just below the boat's ladder. I managed the steps and the ladder with considerably more grace than the evening before and stepped onto the covered aft deck. It was tarted up like the archbishop's parlor. An elegant but spindly antique table with two matching chairs cowered in the corner of an oriental rug that was too good for walking on. Beside them stood a delicate floor lamp with a Tiffany shade. Further afield was a squat leather ottoman with a cutting board balanced on top. That was home base for the Bloody Mary fixings. Cocktail shaker, sliced celery, and a pepper mill. My host fit right in with his eclectic surroundings. He was dressed in chinos and an untucked cambric shirt that was old and worn, but crisply pressed. He wore Persian slippers with curled toes and no socks, and a ratty-looking bracelet made of colored threads. But he also had a massive silver watch with more dials and sweep hands than a fighter cockpit, and a pinky ring with a green stone the size of a Thompson seedless. Up close, I could see the skin of his patrician face was more mottled than ruddy, and he wore horned-rimmed reading glasses on the tip of a pinched nose, whose network of capillaries looked like the hub city and an airline route map. He said, Do you have any idea what it costs to restore a mangled engine on a boat like this? Don't ask me. I'm into perforation, not restoration. He fixed me with a look over his glasses and shook his head. That's what rappers do, isn't it, Mr. Reardon? Make up smart little rhymes. Yeah, but they're better at it than me. I suppose if a man is good at perforation, he can't be good at everything. Please, have a seat. He arranged himself on one of the spindly chairs. I sat on mine like I was incubating an egg, hoping I wouldn't pulverize it. Could you make out the name of the boat when you inspected the transom? It looked like HMS Happy Day. Yes, and that was what brought to mind the comment about the damaged engine. There's an old riddle about boat ownership. It goes like so... What are the two happiest days of a boat owner's life? The day he buys a boat and the day he sells it. Because of the expense and bother of maintaining it, you see? Then it follows that the saddest day must be when a boat sinks, especially if you're on it. Probably. But don't confuse ownership with breaking and entering. He stirred his Bloody Mary with a celery stick. My apologies. I've been rude. Would you care to join me in a morning pick-me-up? No, I wouldn't. Let's quit barbering around the edges here. Rude isn't failing to offer me a drink. Rude is trying to drown me. Who are you and what do you want? He gave me the faintest of smiles and sipped his drink. Are you familiar with Sisyphus? I sighed and crossed my arms. 
Sure, he's the one who says, Exit, stage left even. That's Snagglepuss, you idiot. Oh, so it is. Sisyphus was the king from Greek mythology who offended the gods, and his punishment was made to roll a huge stone up a hill in the underworld. But every time he reaches the top, the stone escapes and rolls back again, trapping him in meaningless labor throughout all eternity. Accordingly, pointless activities are often referred to as Sisyphean tasks. I flicked at some lint on my trousers. Thanks for the news flash. And your point would be? You are engaged in a Sisyphean task. By that, I mean your investigation of fraud in the mayoral election. You call it meaningless if the wrong candidate gets elected? I know that Lenora Lee hired you to investigate why her candidate lost. Let's assume there was fraud and some votes were taken away from Chow. He probably wasn't going to win. He wasn't going to come close to winning. He probably wouldn't have gotten enough votes to participate in the runoff. So, the results are the same, whether or not there was fraud. It serves no purpose to investigate because the outcome will be the same, the epitome of a pointless task. It matters to Lee because she wanted to influence Loudon's platform by making a stronger showing. But set that aside. If I was trying to assemble the biggest yarn ball in the world, I doubt I'd have people sinking boats out from under me. It can't be completely pointless if people will kill to stop you. So, I'll ask again, who are you and what do you want? The name's Calder. Arthur Calder. I represent a group of civic-minded San Franciscans who feel that the November election is best put behind the city as quickly as possible. Allegations of fraud serve only to raise concerns in the public's mind about the sanctity of the voting process. Concern that would be misplaced. The results are the results. They wouldn't have changed. Why don't you just cop to it? You work for CVT. I meant what I said. I represent a coalition of like-minded, but independent individuals. You're full of it, no matter who you work for. But even if the fraud in the last election didn't turn out to be material, John Q. Public should damn well be concerned about electronic voting in San Francisco, and the runoff is proving to be a much closer race. Calder settled back into his chair and nibbled on his celery stick. We're confident we can prevent any reoccurrence, assuming, for the sake of argument, there were any problems. I threw up my hands. I can't believe I'm having this conversation. You tried to kill me, and you're making it sound like a League of Women Voters project. And you trespassed and most likely stole property. Listen, my friend, you're in way over your head. You've no idea who you're up against. We know you showed some restraint last night. We decided to show you some in return. A seagull screeched behind me, making me jump in my chair. Calder looked across with a dead calm expression. So now we've talked, I said, one man to another. Your idea is that I fold my tent and go home. Stop digging into the election. 
That would be it. And what if I put the cops onto you? It's your word against mine. And believe me, I'm better connected at Bryant Street than you are. What if I trace ownership of the boat, find out who you're representing? The boat's in my name, so it's still your word against mine. And you can be sure there won't be any damage the next time you see it. Nothing to link it to the incident last night. And if I continue to investigate? Calder set the drink down on the table. I think you know what will happen. What would have happened last night while you slept in your bed if we wanted it to? But I'm a man who believes that the stick works better with the carrot. He leaned forward to pull something out of his hip pocket. He slid a fat envelope across. I thumbed open the flap and peeked inside. It was bulging with $100 bills. That looks like a nice chunk of change. Yes, a nice bit. It's $15,000. You'll get another 50000 if you stay clear until the election's over. You don't even have to tell Lee that you're quitting. Just tell her that you ran into a dead end. You can collect from both of us. I stared down at the money for a long moment. Then I smiled. I reached under the table and took hold of the nearest leg, snapped it off. I gripped it like a club and stood over Calder, who was now trying to become one with the seat back. Here's another bit of Greek mythology. Remember the Procrustean bed? And the guy who cut or stretched people to fit into it? You or any of your people come near me again, and I'll stretch your ass so wide it will fit all four of these. Call it a Procrustean suppository. I flung the table leg into the water and went away from there. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. 